Against the Odds, AHC's inaugural podcast series featuring the true stories of real-life bands of brothers who exhibited unparalleled bravery, solidarity, and endurance on the battlefield to come out on top in a fight against impossible odds. Reliving battles from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and Iraq, these are the true stories of the harsh realities of war, as told by the veterans who survived to tell. I'm your host, Shane Bowler, and this week we present the untold story of the rescue at Dog's Head. None of us, in our wildest dreams, had any idea of what we had actually stumbled into. We didn't have any idea that there were some 700 regular NVA soldiers. The company reported being surrounded nearly right away. We were running out of all ammo. I told Colonel Conrad, you don't give us some ammunition here by 3.30, just send the body bags and don't bother. 79 men trapped by a force of 700 North Vietnamese soldiers. We were the closest friendly element to Charlie Company. We had to go. And an incredible rescue. They would risk their lives and the lives of their men to come to the aid of their fellow soldiers by a group of brothers who refused to give up. Those men moved out knowing what was likely to happen to them. All those kids were gonna die. There's nothing I could do about it. We fulfilled our mission. That's what we did. We were brothers. This is their story, Against the Odds, the untold story of the rescue at Dog's Head. By the early spring of 1970, the United States badly needs to show some strategic muscle inside the no-man's land of War Zone C, an enemy stronghold that American forces have been unable to take control of. U.S. command believes their advantages in mobility and firepower will do the job. Easier said than done in the hellhole called War Zone C. War Zone C is a thousand square kilometers of tall, heavily canopied jungle sitting on the invasion route to Saigon, a hundred kilometers southeast. Deserted of villagers, it is a deadly sanctuary of the North Vietnamese Army. Aggressive American patrolling outside ever-moving fire support bases keeps the only lid on an invisible, ever-aggressive enemy. At its deadly center is a contorted bend in the Cambodian border known only as the Dog's Head, an ambusher's paradise of unmitigated jungle and swamp with virtually no areas to operate the mechanized American forces critical to U.S. plans for degrading enemy strength. Among the forces deployed to War Zone C is the 1st Cavalry Division of the U.S. Army. The 1st Cavalry Division has earned its awesome reputation in headlong combat through three bloody wars. It has made a specialty of evolving revolutionary combat tactics on the fly in dozens of battles decided by courage and inches. It will be no different in the dog's head. John B. Poindexter, Commander, Alpha Troop, 11th Armored Cavalry Division. Alpha Troop was mounted. We had nine Sheridan tanks, uh, 24 ACAVs, three mortar vehicles. 
Upon arrival there, we were assigned to an infantry battalion of the 1st Cavalry Division under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Michael Conrad. Colonel Conrad inquired of us how we might best fit into his combat operations. My suggestion was to mount the infantry company on the tops of our vehicles to maneuver through the jungle to uh, search out the enemy in their areas of operation that he outlined for our use. He agreed with that proposition. Captain Poindexter's new jungle-busting effort will provide the firepower to bust through the jungle in search of enemy targets. It is a radical new approach that merges together two completely opposite methods of war, armor and infantry, in the hopes of multiplying the punch and range of both. Ray Armour, Commander, Alpha Company, 1st Cavalry Division. I was informed by my battalion commander that we were going to be uh, attached, my rifle company was going to be attached to an armored cab unit. When I met John Poindexter, we introduced ourselves to each other. He said he told me he knew nothing about the infantry tactics. And I told him I knew nothing about armored tactics. And that was probably the opening of a good relationship between him and I. Ray Tar, tank loader, Alpha Troop, 11th Armored Cavalry Division. We weren't sure how this was going to work out. It was a new thing. I felt it gave us a little more protection. And I know they didn't particularly like riding on top of the tracks because they felt that they were becoming targets and uh, they weren't crazy about it. Our vehicles made a lot of noise and the North Vietnamese knew exactly where we were. A few miles away at Firebase Illingworth, newly appointed company commander, Captain George Hobson, is troubled as he takes over the 79 infantrymen of Charlie Company, 8th Cavalry. Exhausted and depleted from non-stop search and destroy missions, morale in the unit is shaky. George Hobson, commanding officer, 1st Cavalry Division. What we wound up with before departing north on the 21st was a company largely composed of either soldiers who had been through very intense combat for an extended period, had lost most of their senior leaders, uh, a huge morale problem, um, and new soldiers who had never heard a shot fired. We left Firebase Illingworth, headed northwest on a typical second of the eighth or any light infantry unit mission. That was to go off in the jungle and see what you could find a search and destroy type of operation. Charlie Company, in reconning, had the task of moving as stealthily as an American unit could through the jungle in search of the enemy, looking for trails and evidences of any sort of activity. In fact, it found some. It found a trail which had sandal prints on it and which was clearly in active use as was the SOP, or Standard Operating Procedure, for the 1st Cavalry. The company began to follow the trail, staying off of the trail itself, lest it be ambushed, and moving through the jungle slowly and attempting to see the enemy before the enemy saw it. 
Now, that's an impossibility. The North Vietnamese lived there. That was their neighborhood. They knew the terrain. They had outposts. They had sentinels. They could smell Americans because our diet was different. Uh, Americans smoked and smoked different sorts of cigarettes so they could smell the cigarette smoke. Thursday, March 26, 1970, 11 a.m. As Charlie Company continues to stalk the enemy down the discovered Trotter Trail, there are more and more signs that they're heading for an enemy far more dangerous than the usual hit-and-run ambushers. You know, Kit Carson's scout had found a blue communications wire that always indicated a battalion size or level communications point at one end of it. Now I was more convinced than ever that there was a larger, well-entrenched unit somewhere up there. The jungle became thicker and we began to have to slow our pace as the indicators to me in the field were significant of an opposing force which even generally would have exceeded mine in size, but certainly we were headed into a potential reinforced bunker area. And no light infantry unit since World War II has ever been successful against a planned bunker unit. Thursday, March 26, 1970, 11.30 a.m. The company was in one of those areas of War Zone C where there were no landing zones possible, no outside support possible. It was literally on its own in no man's land. Therefore, it was very isolated and it was in search of an enemy that far outnumbered it. Ken Mississippi Woodward, Rifleman, Charlie Company. I remember the point element stopped. And the point element radioed back to Captain Hobson. We've got a sign of enemy activity up here. And Captain Hobson asked what it was. And the person on the other end of the radio said, we've got fresh cuttings and a fresh pile of shit. And as soon as that word was out of his mouth, they hit us. It was just like the whole world turned upside down. The, the volume of fire that we started to receive was incredible. Everyone immediately hit the ground, got behind our pack, out to the jungle, put down suppressing fire. Captain Hobson's nightmare intuition proves correct. Charlie Company's 79 men are trapped and outgunned in a bristling bunker complex and facing an elite NVA regiment of some 700 soldiers. With no landing zones possible for resupply and the nearest help blocked by miles of vicious jungle, Charlie Company's hours are numbered. Hobson knows defeat here dooms the viability of any further U.S. offensive efforts in the war. Roughly two miles away, John Poindexter and the men of his untested new unit listen by radio to the frantic calls of Charlie Company. Commanding the closest unit to the battle, Poindexter must make a life-or-death decision to send his own men into a no-man's land on a near-suicidal rescue mission 
or listen helplessly to the last, desperate cries of Charlie Company. I don't know how they did it, but the people up near the point element were able to go up and retrieve the men who were hit and bring them back within the group. And then it was a matter of having to try and form a perimeter all the same time you're trying to put down a base of fire. Human instinct tells you to stay on that ground, don't move. Return fire, don't move. You can get killed. None of us in our wildest dreams had any idea of what we had actually stumbled into. We knew the enemy was somewhere close. Well, they wanted us to find them, and we did. For some, it was the last thing they did. At 12 noon, Team Alpha is still two and a half miles away. Next thing I remember was gunfire broke out a ways away, but we could hear it clearly. We began to follow the action on the radio. It turned out, we soon discovered, it was Charlie Company. We knew something about Charlie Company. They'd ridden with us a, a couple of months before. Following that, it became very clear to us that the company was heavily engaged, reported being surrounded nearly right away, which was a death sentence. That was a literal death sentence. To be in an area of impenetrable jungle, pinned down, unable to move, and surrounded, unable to be resupplied, unable to receive additional ammunition, unable to have casualties evacuated, we could get there before dark. None of the far more experienced and senior, far more capable officers and the helicopters at the site of this impending disaster knew we could do it, but we did. So John and I uh, started talking, you know, what we should do, because we hadn't received any orders to move or anything like that. So what do you do? On the one hand, you know if you do the thing that the Army says you never do, which is volunteer, you know men are gonna die. And many others will be wounded. If you don't do it, if you say, let this cup pass me by, for the rest of your life, you're gonna know that you let 80 men either die or we march into Cambodia and we had more than enough problems to worry about already, having been subjected to three deaths just the night before. We made a, a decision, and it was a mutual decision. We were the closest friendly element to Charlie Company, and so that we had to go. 1 p.m., War Zone C. Or almost no sleep for two days, underfed, exhausted, those men moved out on command without any hesitation, right back into the jungle, 
knowing what was likely to happen to him. It was still a very long shot. They would get there in time, and if we got there, we weren't ambushed on the way ourselves. As Captain John Poindexter's A-Team mounts up and heads into the jungle, and an uncertain fate, Charlie Company is fighting desperately against an onslaught of enemy machine guns, RPGs, and mortar fire. Little did we know that we had stumbled onto the entire 272nd Regiment of North Vietnamese Army, but also parts of the 93rd VC Regiment. We were about 80-something soldiers facing close to 700 NVA soldiers. This was going to be a different battle, a very desperate battle. We just hunkered down, the adrenaline kept pumping, and uh, we, kept, we kept fighting. And it went on and on and on. It never seemed to quit. And by this time, we had been in contact two hours, two and a half hours, and uh, we started to run low on ammunition. I could hear on the radio all the other squads, the other platoons telling Captain Hobson, you know, well, we're low on ammo or someone's wounded and, and you know, we, we need men up here. We were running out of all ammo. So about 1.30 or 2 o'clock, I told Colonel Conrad, if you don't give us some ammunition here by 3.30, just send the body bags and don't bother. Every hour of fading light over the dog's head brings the shrinking perimeter of Charlie Company closer to obliteration. Their only hope for survival is itself, battling a nearly impenetrable jungle that is exhausting men, destroying Sheridans, and bringing the rescue to a crawl deep inside a no man's land filled with enemy snipers and deadly ambushes. For close to four hours, the men of Charlie Company have been fighting for their lives against 700 dug-in NVA. They know a defeat here will critically extinguish any last hope of offensive success in the Vietnam War. Attempting to rescue Charlie Company are Captain John Poindexter and his 100 men of A-Team. With only four hours of daylight left, the nearly suicidal mission is battling a brutal, impenetrable jungle that is slowing the rescue to a crawl. Not only were we worrying about an ambush on the way in, but also the time it was after lunch, it was in the afternoon. In that part of the world, it gets dark about 7 o'clock. And so time was a big factor here. Time, uh, we wanted to get there before any more of Ch Charlie Company was killed or wounded. We wanted to have time to get them and get them back out of there. 4 p.m., Charlie Company. We were using ammunition at a very high expenditure rate. I was really concerned about that. We were not getting any calls from battalion asking about how we were doing. And I had begun a redistribution of ammunition from those who are unable to engage in the return of fire. We're getting lower and lower on ammunition, and then I hear the blades of a helicopter. 
On the radio, the pilot says, uh, where are you? Pop smoke. The skids were in the canopy, and it never quite got over us from the east side, but it got very close. And I could, I could still hear the uh, sound of the small arms and tracers going into that helicopter. The helicopter was being hit so heavily that they were obviously getting rid of everything they could as quickly as they could. So at any rate, the ammunition comes out. None of it's in the perimeter. Who they were, how in the heck they did, I'll never know. But I can remember watching two guys run out there and grab some of that ammunition and start hauling it back inside our perimeter. I didn't think we'd get another resupply. That was it. It took us approximately four hours to get to that area with the knocking down jungle. There was no trail, no road, nothing to go up there. We didn't even know a Charlie Company still be there when we got up there. Uh, that's how bad the battle was going. We knew this was going to be a serious fight, not a hit-and-run battle like we were used to. We're going in and going to take the tiger on by the throat. We could not get the wounded out. We either all stay here and die together, or some of us stay here uh, and try and provide a delay force for those few that might get out of there, uh, remain alive overnight until some help could be brought in. Hell, that was the only thing I had to do. What hell else was I gonna do? Kids were gonna die. And I nothing I could do about it. I guess it was you know, probably close to between four thirty and five o'clock. And all of a sudden we began to hear this roar. And you wonder, what the heck is that? You know, I mean, you're used to you're used to the noise and the chaos of the battle, but this was a different sound. Pretty soon, though, it came over the net that there was uh, a relief column on its way. It was Alpha Troop of the 11th Armored Cavalry, and our sister infantry company who was operating with them that day, they had taken it on their own. Their commanders had been listening to the battle four or five kilometers away. And without being told, they knew that we weren't gonna get out of there. Not gonna get out of there alive anyway. Captain John Poindexter, Captain Ray Armour made the decision they were gonna come in there and they were going to help us, if they could, on their own. 
they would risk their lives and the lives of their men to come to the aid of their fellow soldiers. Charlie Company was flat on their stomachs, or backs if they'd already been killed, flat on their stomachs uh, in a very small circle, completely surrounded by the NVA. To me, it was much like a bullfight. These are the, these are the picadores in there, getting the bull ready for the kill, exhausting it so it heads hangs down and it's, and it's ready to be killed. A lot of us weren't even thinking about fighting. We were thinking we'd just get them and then and, and run home, but we didn't. With darkness approaching and no time to look for weak spots, Captain Poindexter makes a fateful decision to set the NVA back on its heels to cover A-Team's return through the jungle with the rescued Charlie Company. Against a powerful enemy expecting him to turn tail, he instead calls for an all-out, straight-ahead armor and infantry assault. With so many of Charlie Company's men wounded and low on ammunition, the brash decision will test Captain Poindexter's young soldiers as they confront, head-on, an elite NVA force of some 700 entrenched soldiers, determined to fight to the death. 5.30 p.m., the dog's head. Outnumbered four to one, Poindexter determines he will not just gather the survivors and retreat. Instead, he will strike at the tough enemy bunkers toe-to-toe -to, -toe to deliver a parting mauling that will tell the enemy that the 1st Cavalry will still be going anywhere it wants in Vietnam for as long as the war goes on. It was at least theoretically possible to turn the troop around and load the casualties, load Charlie Company up, and leave. But that was not the mode of operation of the 11th Cavalry. The 11th Cavalry was a unit that was, that was inculcated with the notion of assault. When in the presence of the enemy, the only reaction was to come online and to assault the enemy. So John lines up and Ray Armour gets in position and they're going to attack into the bunkers. Again, we didn't have any idea that there were some 700 regular NVA soldiers there. They pulled up into the bunker complex, pulled online, then all hell broke loose when they opened fire. They tore that place apart. It would be something that you'd have to experience to be able to comprehend. The jungle began to erode before our eyes. Brush splintered, leaves fell down, bunkers began to be visible. It was an unnerving revelation as to what was in front of us. It was a complex of trenches, bunkers, and fortified points. It was a massive fortification the advance began, and it was a fight, an individual duel, a single vehicle against a bunker or a complex, a group of bunkers. 
It was a brawl, a face-to-face, -face, brutal brawl, where the victory went to whoever was willing to stand there and slug it out the longest. That's when things got real serious, because the North Vietnamese were fully in evidence. They were there. They began to fight back vigorously from their fortified positions. Our line advanced slowly to the bunker complex, a meter at a time, a meter, two meters, 10 meters, 15 meters. The left wing of the advance was completely immersed. He could go almost nowhere. The ACAVs and the Sheridans were closest to us. I don't think they ever got more than about 50 yards beyond our perimeter into that bunker complex. I was beginning to think about this battle being literally unwinnable and the loss being so catastrophic that we couldn't bear it. Bogged down in the middle of a complex, unable to withdraw, Charlie Company still brutalized, our men now bleeding to death. Another monster explosion took place right next to me. I was hurled to the floor of our ACAB along with the rest of the crew. It was time to call Colonel Conrad, our battalion commander. And I told him, I, th I thought we were all done. He said, you're way more than done. Get out of there. We had done our job. We had fought the enemy. We had fought him well. One of the Sheridans charged back towards and into where I was, and with the TC standing up and saying, get your guys loaded up, we're gonna get out of here. We have two and a half miles of jungle to traverse. The only way out was the way we came in. No other choice. I looked down inside my own vehicle, a big rectangular aluminum box with a cavernous interior, now almost devoid of ammunition. It was filled with infantrymen laying at our feet. Some were dead. We couldn't put any in our turret. They just, we couldn't function with our weapons with anybody else in there, but they rode on the back and they rode on the front of my Sheridan. But I heard some of the other guys say they would get in the bellies of those armored personnel carriers and the gunners couldn't even find a place to stand. And in some instances, guys laid on top of guys in there. The three-hour slugfest has left three dead and many in critical condition in need of immediate medical attention. With nothing to light their way and darkness quickly falling, Poindexter is once again in a race against time. Had the enemy felled trees across our line of advance? Were there mines? Had they put a minefield in behind us? Was there an ambush? Were there a hundred of them behind us waiting for us to try to leave through the same route we'd entered on? In this case, there was no choice. By 6 p.m., the ragged unit has left the enemy fortifications, but finds itself smothered in darkness, forcing the slow-moving column to a stop. Low on ammunition, vulnerable to an enemy that owns the night, Point Dexter and Charlie Company are once again trapped. 
We were exhausted. The adrenaline was up real high. The fear is there. And we're going to get hit again. Uh, is an RPG going to hit the side of his track vehicle? Uh, am I going to die before I get back? At that point, we really couldn't move anymore. You can't turn your headlights on if there are any left. I don't think we probably had any headlights left. We were stuck like a long snake in the intestines of this jungle. We had to have overhead illumination. We were lost. We were lost except we had one last chance. We had one mortar track left back at the night defensive position. Captain Poindexter is able to reach the vital mortar team four kilometers away by radio. He tells them, fire everything you have into the air. The crew scrambles desperately to find illumination rounds. He issued the command and as if by magic, the night began to lighten. The mortar section actually shot around that was close enough to begin to illuminate our passage through the jungle. Just a, a, a sense of total relief. We knew we were going to get back to where our buddies could get evacuated, get treated. We fulfilled our mission. We fought like American soldiers should fight. Although we hated to lose our brothers and to see our friends wounded, It was a, a moment of pride. It wasn't until many years later that I began to truly appreciate the sacrifices the men had made, men who literally were willing to risk their lives at a time where we were all in the greatest peril that anyone could imagine. These men were brothers in every real sense. At the time, military records list the battle and rescue in the dog's head as the anonymous battle. Forty years later, it is discovered that the men who had been recommended for well-deserved decorations by Captain Poindexter never received them. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the White House. Uh, and welcome to a moment nearly 40 years in the making. The Rose Garden, October 20th, 2009. Today, we celebrate the awarding of our nation's highest honor for a military unit, the Presidential Unit Citation. We, an entire generation of men and women who had been unrecognized for their patriotic roles in a war that the country chose to forget for a very long time. This was for us redemption, recognition, and peacemaking with our past. I cannot imagine a more fitting tribute to these men who fought in what came to be called the anonymous battle. Troopers, you are not anonymous anymore. And with America's overdue recognition also comes responsibility our responsibility as citizens and as a nation
to always remain worthy of your service. The epic battle in the Dog's Head still has no name. But to the men who fought there, all that matters is the imperishable names of every one of the band of brothers who bled and died at their side as they fought impossibly against the odds. Ray Tar, tank loader, Alpha Troop. I saw men in combat rushing to aid other injured soldiers. People not think of their own self when they did acts of courage. They thought of the other person. And like we said when we were there, we're fighting for each other. And that's what uh, most of us did. We fought for each other. Ray Armour, Commander, Alpha Company. 45 years later, when I go up to the wall in Washington, D.C. on Veterans Day, I don't forget these men. It makes a difference in my life. George Hobson. Soldiers in both Alpha Troop and Alpha Company, I don't think uh, that they felt, any of them, that they were doing anything particularly heroic that day. I believe that that's also the way that we would have felt uh, had they needed our help. But it's undoubtedly true that without the courage, the foresight, and the good leadership of Ray Armour and John Poindexter, Charlie Company would not have survived. Ken Woodward. I got to meet these men. I got to walk up to them, shake their hands, look them in the eyes, hug them, laugh, cry. These are the guys who saved my life. And I can tell you that to, to a man, every time I shook their hand and said, thank you, thank you for saving my life, they looked me in the eye and said, you'd have done the same thing for me. You'd have done the same thing for me. And he's right. I would have done it because that's what we did. That's the American soldier. That's what we did. We were brothers. This podcast was produced by the American Heroes Channel. Join us next week for Against the Odds, 46 Days of Hell. The story of the 2004 charge into Iraq's most dangerous city, Fallujah. I'm your host, Shane Bowler. Thank you for listening.